Welcome to Wango Spaces. It's a beautiful Thursday evening. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really, sir. Today, we want to discuss the banks uh, have one results and we have very able uh, guests here. To begin with, I'll tell you about the, uh, the spaces today, just analyzing banks, uh, Kenyan banks, especially the listed banks, uh, the results for the first half of the year. So if you want more people to join us, just go to a pinned tweet on both accounts and uh, retweet the top tweet. Also, tell your friends and family to join us on Among Us Spaces. Uh, now, I'll introduce the speakers. Eric Musau, uh, maybe you can begin by telling people where you work and what you do yourself, and then we'll go with Ronald. Thank you very much, Mwango. Spaces for that. I work at uh, SIB, and SIB is a uh, standard investment bank, and that's uh, one of uh, Kenya's largest indigenous investment banks with a substantial number of clients, including fund managers, corporations, governments, high net worth, and retail investors. So our key businesses are corporate finance, asset management. I think we are known mostly for Mansa or Mansa product securities trading, so fixed income and equities, and research and advisory, which I had. Thanks, Eric. Ronak, maybe you can introduce yourself to those who don't know you. Thank you. My name is Ronak Gadia, recently promoted to being managing director, looking at frontier banks within the research department at EFG Hermes. As many of you have been looking at the Kenyan banks uh, for around almost uh, 20 years now. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, I do also closely look at some of the other East African and, and uh, 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 SSA-based banks, as well as banks based in other frontier economies. There's a rumor that you paid 100 million shillings per month. Is that true, Ronald? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> really nice open to have met you. I think the first time we met earlier this year in yeah. person. So guys, let's dive into the results of the banks. Let's start with high level thoughts. What was your take in terms of looking at those results? Uh, so Ronak, maybe you can start and then Eric can continue. Uh, yeah, sure. I would say broadly, I was disappointed in the numbers. If you look at, just looking at the nine listed banks, which are obviously the nine largest banks uh, in Kenya by market share, contributing about 60, 70% of total assets. Uh, on average, uh, profits increased by around 13.6%, which is slightly higher than inflation. But uh, when you compare that performance to, like I said, many of the other regional peers and frontier peers, it's very modest uh, across the region and uh, across the frontier space we are seeing much more stronger double-digit growths, uh, some banks growing by as much as 100% as well on a year-on-year basis, given the high asset uh, yields and, and the subsequent impact on, on, on the margins. It's a broadly uh, disappointing given the headline numbers. We can obviously dig deeper into that, but the bottom line, I would say, was, was a bit disappointing. We'll come back to why it was disappointing a bit more. Eric, what are your high-level thoughts? For me, I, I, I really didn't mind too much in terms of the performance. I, I think there were pockets of weakness, uh, but I think overall, uh, when you just look at um, the performance in the context of the economy, it wasn't too bad, uh, but, but there were certainly areas where one could get concerned about uh, or in certain banks. I, I particularly liked the multinationals, your upside, your stand chart. Stand big. They seemed to do quite well in terms of uh, managing their their cost of funds and um, their, their return on equity was was quite attractive. And then, of course, a bit of disappointment. I think KCB had quite a number of one-offs, and 
and certainly that really weighed down the overall performance. But overall, as a sector, we like the valuations and happy with, with, with where the banks are if somebody is looking to make a purchase. Let's go down the balance sheet a little bit. Let's start with their income, interest expenses and interest income. What's your take on that, given especially the macro environment and how generally like banks are doing as this, the new central bank governor came in, raised rates almost in the first uh, instance uh, by 100 basis points. Is that uh, flowing through the income statements of the various banks? I think uh, that did come through. I think when you look at uh, some of the banks, uh, it, that did come through. Um, of course, that number did go up for, for, for quite a number of the, the, the banks. Uh, I think the net impact, there are some banks which are really adjusting because their, their cost of funds was going up uh, at a much faster rate. So the overall flow to the bottom line was not as robust. So of course, the, for some of the banks whose balance sheet were well-structured and they didn't have very expensive foreign debt, then those you could see how that additional margin was able to actually flow to the bottom line. So I think that that was a, a key differentiator. Some banks which had borrowed in foreign currency, so your likes of Equity Bank, KCB to a certain extent, and, and quite a number of the local banks, historically, they had a history of uh, borrowing in, in foreign currency. And in the last one year, we, we had a major adjustment in pricing upwards of that debt. I would imagine by as much as almost 500 basis points. And that really uh, led to a higher cost of funds. And they were really struggling to raise the interest rates they charge in order to just offset that cost of funds, which was coming in. Some banks, of course, were even looking to pay down debt. Tank charters as a key example. So whether you were able to really grow your names was really a factor of that and um, whether you had sufficient capital rations because otherwise uh, you'd have had to compete with government to raise uh, deposits and at this point raising deposits is quite expensive for banks. Well, then in that regard, then how are the loan books for the various banks? Uh, maybe you could start with you, Eric. So the loan books are, we, we've seen very robust growth in the loan books. And I don't know whether that's something to worry about because at these high interest rates, is, is, is it a good thing for the banks to be lending as aggressively? Or does it mean the economy is sufficiently robust and business sufficiently profitable to be able to accommodate the current uh, high rates? One would have thought that with the higher interest rate environment, we'd see a, a, a lot more aggressive slowdown in credit uptake. Uh, but I, I'm just surprised that credit has still remained as robust as it has. I just hope that it's, it's not a risk uh, being fed into the system because at this pricing, that could be a, a, a significant issue uh, sometime down the road. Ronak, any takeaways from the loan books, especially and how the interest and interest income and insurance expenses are flowing? On average, we saw loans growing by about 18%, which like Eric has mentioned earlier, is quite a significant acceleration relative to what these banks have reported over the last uh, six or years since 2016. So we have seen a bit of an acceleration. And like Eric mentioned, so what you're seeing in the numbers right now is a bit of a contradiction. On the one hand, loans, loan growth has accelerated, which which seems to suggest that the underlying economic growth is, is quite first. 
But at the same time, the banks are telling us that they're challenged on the NPL's asset quality side, which I'm sure we'll speak about as well. And, and obviously from our own experiences, we know given the increasing inflation, devaluation, et cetera, things are a bit more difficult. But when you look at the balance sheet growth, it has uh, somewhat accelerated. Partly that is because we are, so for some of the banks, we are seeing some strong growth come through outside of Kenya. KCB equity in particular, as we know, expanded rapidly. And their loan book, given the strong growth outside, they've reported one of the strongest growth within the space. Um, but also within that, I think that there are some banks which over the last five, six years have been a bit more conservative, have lost a bit of market share, and are now starting to maybe regain some of that market share. So within that space, you could put apps, arguably, and trust as well. So overall, I, we've seen uh, a long growth pickup, but within that, you also have the likes of KCB equity apps are um, um, Diamond Trust also pushing, nudging the, the growth figure slightly higher because of um, specific uh, factors. Um, that being said, when you look at the net interest income overall, it increased by again more than twenty percent, which seems decent enough. But I would say I, I'm a bit disappointed. You could argue that I'm being a bit more greedy here. That growth in plus 20% was skewed towards a few specific banks. As Eric has referenced earlier, the multinational banks have done particularly well. So we've seen some very strong net interest income growth coming through from APSA, Standbeck, Standard Chartered. If you take those out, the rest of the banks, the net interest income grew by around 13.5%, which I would say is a bit disappointing relative to historical uh, performance because historically, in Kenya, when we have seen interest rates increase, like in 2011, 2015, we've seen in net interest income for banks accelerate much more faster. And also, when you compare that performance to other frontier banks, which are also benefiting from a high interest rate environment, the growth in net interest income has been much more faster. So again, at the sector level, plus 20% growth is good, but that I think is being concentrated on a few specific banks if you exclude them. The growth in net interest income, in my opinion, was uh, somewhat disappointing. Maybe something you alluded to in terms of the loan book. Uh, there's uh, the increase in provisions across board. Most banks, I think of the listed ones, only two reduced provisions. And I know KCB has been a bit uh, hit, especially this year. Uh, the, the stock itself is almost half down, uh, given the concerns around NPLs and all. What's your takeaway from looking at the banks so far? Are they dealing with the issues that they have with NPS head-on or how is it pro progressing so far? On the surface, you could argue that the banks are dealing with the NPLs. But the issue I have with the Kenyan banks is that this asset quality issue has become quite significant and we're not quite clear in terms of the magnitude of the problem. If you look at the NPL ratio, Looking at it from a sector perspective, the NPL ratio has persistently been about 10% and more recently between 14 and 15%. Now, on the one hand, that is not that much of a surprise because of the challenges that the economy is facing, inflation, devaluation, some of the other issues. But again, when I compare the Kenyan banks to the other banks that I look at, those are not Kenya-specific problems. Inflation is a global issue right now. Many frontier economy currencies have come under a lot of uh, pressure. Many of them are reporting much lower GDP growth. Yet, we're not seeing the same level of deterioration in NPLs that we're seeing within the Kenyan banks. 
my issue with the Kenyan banks NPLs is not the fact that they're making provisions, but the fact that the, those NPLs are continuing to increase from a relatively elevated level. And it's getting up to a point where we're, I'm starting to think that maybe this is much more of a systemic issue that warrants much more attention from the central bank than, than it's currently being, than, than it requires much more attention from the central bank than is currently being provided. Eric, what's your thoughts on NPLs and uh, how that's progressing? I, 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 say, I, I share the same views with uh, Ronak. Uh, it, it's certainly something that uh, is, is of concern. Um, there's, of course, the government component, uh, especially the pending bills, which uh, have, have been a major issue. And, of course, there are specific banks that, that has uh, impacted the most, especially KCB. Uh, but one can imagine uh, that across the sector, there are uh, businesses which uh, uh, have been affected by delaying uh, payments uh, across county governments as well as the national government. So clearly that could be something. Um, and given that government is such a big part of, a, of an economy, probably closer, I would say maybe 20%, that's something uh, that one has to watch out. We've not as yet seen significant layoffs, but even when you look at the specific, the NPLs, the, what you'd say, the personal sector, the, that's not where the NPLs are coming from. In fact, the NPL from the personal sector has been particularly low and actually accretive to the overall NPL. Otherwise, would have had a much higher NPL uh, ratio if the personal sector was a major issue. You know, what our sense is, of, and of course, when you look at the NPLs, we, from, especially from the, some of the manufacturing as well as the hospitality sector from COVID, some of those problems are still with us, even though the hospitality sector has recovered. I think some of the problem are still within the system. Some of the real estate businesses, I think there's still a bit of resolutions around there that are probably taking time to get worked through the, the system. And the, at the court process, even where the, the banks have securities, I think realizing that takes a lot longer. And I, I would imagine those are some of the things which are also probably making it sticky. And, and maybe also there's been a lot more need for capacity building on the part of banks to lend to corporates. Because I think there might have been some name lending in the past, which has come to help the sector. But then that's something that's struck me because today I think in the newspaper, there is a case where KCB, I think the company that KCB was suing, get the money back. KCB wants to liquidate the asset, but then the, the court order now stops it from doing anything uh, with it in the time being. So it's like it will take such a long time to work through some of the NPLs, especially uh, for a bank like KCB. We've seen the same issue with them trying to liquidate uh, TransCentury and also East African Cables. So you see like that substantial number of NPLs that may be there for a while. How would now banks approach such cases now? It may take so long to get those assets, but should you do a complete write-off or in the meantime, or what do you do? Eric asks. I think certainly the write-off needs to happen, even as they proceed with the recovery process. And I would imagine to a certain extent, uh, some of these names have already been provided for in the books. And uh, so there's, of course, that element of trying to chase through. And, but the question is, is it been fully provided? Are we there yet? I think Ronak did allude very clearly that are we over and done with, or are we still seeing some new names cropping up? 
and making the, this situation sticky, uh, if, even though the event might have already been passed. So for me, really, that's, that's a main concern. But otherwise, the banks can argue they have security, uh, but these cases can drag on in, in court for, for a considerable period. And that, that may, even though they might eventually recoup something, it's, it's an issue. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm sure the banks have tried to talk with, with their clients to try and find an amicable solution. But I think those discussions can be held a lot more to, to, to maybe have some sort of adjustments and agreements. Of course, the banks normally argue that this is depositor money, but I think there is a trade-off that one has to look at if we are to ride through these situations well. Interesting. Ronak, do you have anything to add on the, the NPLs before I move on to the next question? Yeah. Obviously, like you mentioned, a lot of these NPLs are corporate-driven. Uh, they're, they're very concentrated. And this, given the judicial process in Kenya, takes time to make recoveries and whatnot. But I think what the banks first and foremost need to do is they need to get honest with themselves. For a very long time, we've had these discussions with banks where the NPL cover is low and you ask them, yeah, it's fine because we have collateral. But given the, given the lengthy judicial process and given that some of these decisions are not going their way, I think the, the banks need to be honest with themselves and maybe potentially increase their loss given default assumptions. And at the same time, reduce their expectations on what they, on the potential recoveries on collateral. Kenyan banks, when you look at their NPL cover, which ranges from, let's say, anywhere between 60 to 70% on average for some of the banks like ECB, it's even much lower. They need to increase those provisions to a certain extent that, okay, then that, that make investors comfortable so that when we take a look at them and say, okay, fine, this NPLs. They may take longer uh, to recover, but even if they don't recover, the bank has made sufficient provisions and they shouldn't be, the, the downside risk from here on should be reduced, should be less. So that's one thing. The other thing, if most of them are indeed legacy loans, these are issues that, that have been faced by other banks. And what they tend to end up doing is maybe create some sort of an asset management company that absorbs these NPLs and thereafter uh, recovers it. So either you can have a common asset management company that, that absorbs these NPLs from the banks, obviously at a cost to the bank, because ultimately they are the ones who should bear the potential underlying losses for this. So maybe set up a common asset management company, or maybe each of the banks should be allowed to set up a special purpose vehicle where, or to which they can transfer their NPLs. And, and so that, what that then allows them to do is all um, of the recovery process separately. And in the meantime, they can start to show much more cleaner numbers on their, on their new portfolio, which then again, gives us a bit more of more visibility on the credit decisions that the banks are making on the new loans that they're creating. Because for now, that's not entirely clear in terms of what are the legacy NPLs and what are the new NPLs that, that the banks are creating. So by, by moving them off to an SPV, I think we get better visibility on, on that uh, as well. So yeah, that's the those two things. things I'd like to see. More provisions and maybe potentially create an SPV. But bottom line, I, I think the central bank has the, its head in the sand for a very long time. And you can't have a system-wide NPL ratio of consistently at 15% 
You can't have your largest bank in Kenya reporting an NPL ratio of 20% and pretend everything is fine. They need to get a handle on this and give some guidance to the investment community in terms of what the issue is and how it can be resolved. Indeed. Eric, do you have any thoughts to add on that? Are there banks that you see that are making progress in terms of dealing with NPL issue head-on? Yeah, I think the multinationals then tend to provide quite quickly, just my quick sense of it. And maybe that's why uh, when you look at the provisions, you see you, is the, yeah, the NPL ratio is probably less than 10%. And uh, probably as Ronak is alluding to, those are much more cleaner numbers and m- maybe more relevant at this time. So uh, the quicker banks are able to kind of provision and, and move forward, it, I think they're better. And I think the multinational banks have been better at that. Uh, I think there are others which maybe try and grow out of the NPL problem because as they grow the lending, the blended NPL of the new lending, I, I would imagine that that could also be something some banks could be looking to to address. But of course, you remember like KCB, of course, has the National Bank legacy issues uh, and that's been dominant for, for a long time. I think, yeah, clearly it's something that they've had to address and they, they did throw in quite a number of things in the last, in, in the second quarter. So maybe, I don't know whether we are there yet, but I think we've seen that, but they, there's always this possibility that we could see a lot more provision still coming through. Yeah, no, I agree. At the headline level, like Eric mentioned, we are seeing a bit of a divergence between the multinational banks and the local banks for the multinationals. We are seeing NPLs trend lower, although they're still relatively high. That being said, if you look at it from a provisioning perspective, all the banks, including the multinational banks, still reporting very high provisioning numbers, very high cost of risk which seems to suggest that either the underlying NPL formation is quite high or they're expecting it to be quite high, or they believe that the underlying collateral values are insufficient and they need to significantly bulk up the provisions. Either way, it doesn't paint a positive picture for asset quality for the banking sector. Is the issue around asset quality the main reason why the KCB itself is like that much down in the last one year? In my honest opinion, no. <laughs> That, I guess, is one of the key issues, asset quality. But KCB, I think there are more uncertainties around it right now. Apart from the asset quality issues, there's been question marks about their expansion strategy and execution of the same. As Eric referenced earlier, we saw some exceptional costs coming through in in the queue. And that was driven by restructuring-related expenses within their, some of the subsidiaries, as well as some legacy losses at NBK. There's been a lot of question marks about the execution of the expansion, expansionary strategy, and it's not quite clear what the bank will look like in two or three years time. So that's something they need to get on top of. The other one that they surprised quite negatively on in the last 12 months was on their capital and their dividends, again, related to the expansionary strategy that we saw. Their capital can come under quite a lot of pressure at the end of last year because of the acquisition of TMB. Subsequent to that, the, the dividend payout ratio for the group has also significantly declined. So again, some question marks arising about the capital sufficiency of the bank and whether or not the bank can continue 
its growth momentum without having to raise, uh, you know, tier one capital. So it's NPL's execution, expansion, execution, and capital. We'll come back to that a bit more when you give us outlook for the second half of the year. So perhaps the next question that I wanted to tackle was something to do with that the foreign banks seem to be a bit more efficient in terms of a cost to income perspective than the locally owned banks. And on, on that regard also, like when I looked at valuations yesterday, I noticed that especially the ones which are not locally based, they seem to attract premium valuations, say the likes of ABSA, Sunchat, and then you look at, look at KCB and DTB and all these local banks, they're, they're a bit down there in terms of valuations. Is that... Is that a concern of yours? Any differences that you may have noticed between these two banks in, now, in terms of how they approach the market? We can start with Eric and then Rona can get a break a bit. I think that's the case. I think there are good reasons for that. And it might not just be for, for what you could say, maybe like uh, quality reasons per se. If you look at the payout for their multinationals, it tends to be a lot higher because they only have Kenya to focus on for them, anything extra they make, they pay out as a dividend to shareholders. So both the local shareholder as well as back uh, to their parent uh, companies. So I think they, that, that's a major driver. For the local banks, a lot of them are also selling the growth story, the diversification in the other markets that they are looking to expand to. KCB recently went into the DRC. So there's a capital component to that. So obviously the shareholders of KCB are hoping that in future they'll have a much higher dividend. They're, they're getting to a much bigger market. Equity bank, the same way. And all the other banks, your NCB, NCBA, I&M, they are across different markets and those markets require capital and those markets are also expanding well. Uh, Rwanda is a market that has done well for, for the Kenyan uh, holding companies and uh, we've seen uh, Equity Bank and uh, KCB double down in that market to try and uh, expand their operations. And so they, there's, there's definitely a trade-off. Of course, with, with, high interest, with, with higher interest rates, uh, there's an element of discounting where really if you have a solid dividend, that's, that's something that uh, is, is really attractive to investors and you'd be priced uh, better. Um, I, I think one thing to mention is that uh, some of the banks which are doing well today have had their struggles. Stanbeck at some point had very low ROEs, uh, upset as well when they're, imagine, when they're separating with the Barclays. But they managed to move away from those exceptional items and be able to do a lot better in, in a couple of years. And my sense is that even KCB, this year they've had, they have all this restructuring and a lot of things bogging them down. They need to manage the redundancy, duplication in Kenya for between NCBA, between NBK and KCB branches, recapitalizing TMB. And overall, they're, they're, they're very close to their capital margins. But I think in a few years, we'll be talking a different story. As if they play their cards right, we, we might be talking a different story in a couple of years. Uh, obviously, the government stake there remains uh, relevant. And especially when you consider some of the initiatives that are currently being considered, like centralizing the way government operates in terms of the single account. KCB is a major banker to government and to government entities. And having bought NBK again, took on a lot more risk with that perspective. 
So it's also to wonder what happens once you have that collapse of that account, or hopefully they'll still be able to find room for KCB to still operate profitably. I think it should still be in the interest of government uh, from that perspective. But I, I, I see if, if banks operate and they, they're efficient and they, like this time we've seen Kenya being weak on, on average, but the subsidiaries have come in very strongly for, for most of the banks, equity bank, especially even KCB and NCBA. I think there's still optimism in some of these entities. And even with the low valuations, I would still say that there's still room to look at them and at the current levels. One can still pick some good names and hold them out with the current market conditions. Ronald, any thoughts? No, just to echo Eric, I think what the, the difference in performance we're seeing is largely because the multinational banks do seem to be performing relatively better, as we highlighted earlier. When you look at the profit growth, the other factor is the relatively higher dividend payout ratio and dividend yield. And I guess the last fact I would add there, which is, is arguable, but also don't forget that many other multinational banks have a low free float and do tend to get supported by their parent companies when the share price drops quite significantly. So over the last uh, few years, obviously when the share prices were low, we, we've seen uh, standard chartered parent companies step in, Stanbic, you know, increase, standard bank increases stake in, in Stanbic as well. So that also helps to put a floor on, on their uh, valuation. I think that's an important distinction to make for the multinationals relative to locals. Maybe a few quick thoughts before we hit the top of the hour. Uh, just a reminder that if you want to join in the conversation, you can just check our pinned tweet below it. You can type your question and then you'll be able to note it. You can DM us directly and you'll be able to notice it. That the, any question that you have, or you can also request to speak and ask the question directly. Uh, so now I wanted to check out a bit about issues around FX and uh, holdings of government securities because that's just have more macro implications. Um, how, is, how is the outlook in terms of um, the holdings for banks in terms of government securities in the past half of this year compared to the previous year? And especially how are they doing in terms of FX trading income, mm. especially at the depreciation of the Kenya shilling continues? Yeah, Leronak, you can start. Okay, thanks. No, broadly speaking, we haven't seen any noticeable difference in banks' appetite for government securities. Obviously, there's been some concern about the sustainability of debt, but by and large, across uh, most of these banks, the magnitude of the investment securities portfolio has continued uh, to remain constant or has continued to increase even for, for some of the banks. So it seems like they still remain quite comfortable uh, in taking on government uh, risk, despite uh, some of the red flags that we're, we're seeing from a debt sustainability uh, perspective. From an FX trading perspective, I guess on a Q on Q basis, if you compare it to first quarter, we did see some moderation, but nevertheless, when you compare to the same quarter of last year, by and large, most banks were still reporting stronger FX trading income growth, which again, wasn't too much of a surprise. As we know, the FX market continued to remain largely dysfunctional for a large part of the second quarter. Some of the initiatives taken by the former governor and, and the current governor were only implemented around halfway through the quarter. And so for, for a large part of the quarter, the banks were still benefiting from uh, uh, from continued volatility of shilling and large uh, bid-ask spreads. 
So we've seen that result in continued strong FX trading income uh, revenue. Going forward through the rest of the year, my expectation is that income level will remain relatively elevated compared to where it was two years ago because the interbank market is still not quite functional and the spreads are still quite high relative to where it was two years ago. That being said, on a year-on-year basis, compared to the second half of last year, I think we should see a, a reduction given that the interbank market is a, a bit more functional compared to this time last year and spreads are a bit more lower. I would agree with Ronak. Uh, I think uh, what I would say is that, especially on the holdings of government, I think the multinationals may ease off on their holdings of government securities, probably just because of the the capital requirements they might need to hold with regards given the credit rating of the country. So we might still see, and maybe that's why we're still seeing government banks, some banks still keen to lend out despite the high interest rates being offered by government. Of course, longer term banks have to be very careful uh, so they're not caught out in case interest rates uh, reduce suddenly. Although at the moment that doesn't seem to be the case and we've seen in the latest auction, I think they come out today and we're still seeing rates ticking up higher. On the FX, uh, yeah, I, sh- I share the same views. I think uh, margins uh, are coming down because of the dysfunctional market, FX market. It's improving. Uh, but I think even though it's improved, we're still seeing the, the spreads being quite wide compared to historical levels. I, I think there's still some trepidation and there's still some messaging out there about the FX situation, which allows for the spreads to remain wide. The currency has depreciated significantly and it may well have some way to go, I think, towards the end of the year. But I think... Over time now, banks will have to start looking for more organic ways of generating effects in terms of just the trade position, being able to just drive organic business. Because the margins are, are going to, to keep coming down, even the level of depreciation. So they definitely need to just get a much more real customers, uh, trading real businesses, and the margins will definitely have to go down. So it will be just to drive that trade finance business. Thank you, Eric, on those thoughts. So I just wanted a bit of perspective on capital allocation and now that's turning out for a lot of the banks. Uh, we've got three banks issue some interim dividends. I think NCBA cuts dividends quite significantly. Um, how is that the outlook for the rest of the year, especially for banks that are expanding like KCB? Uh, should uh, investors be a little worried that maybe there'll be a cutback in terms of dividends? Uh, what's your feeling around that? We can start with Ronald. By and large, I think KCB is a bit of a standout, but if you look at the other banks, the capital adequacy ratio on average for the eight banks is around 18.5%. As we know, the regulatory minimum is around 14.5%. It's still a pretty decent capital buffer, about 400 basis points. And I think that should enable the banks to sustain their payout ratios in, in line with the historical levels. KCB as as well, if you look at it on a year-to-date basis, we have seen their capital adequacy ratios still start to improve. So on that basis, you could argue that maybe you could see a step up in their payout ratio. But that being said, I think given their growth expansion across the group and given some of the existing concerns they have around NPLs and whatnot, I I still think we'll see the payout ratio remain at similar levels to what we saw in 2022 and then gradually being scaled up uh, over over the next uh, few years. Yeah. 
I, I do think most of the banks should sustain their payout ratios uh, in line with historical levels and, and including KCB, I think that, that they will remain at 2022. Eric, on the same issue of capital allocation and dividends. I think NCBA, you mentioned NCBA reduction of uh, dividends and the thing that was down about 13%. I think that's because they might be looking to make some sort of acquisition um, because I think they remain adequately provided. Uh, but I think the only reason they would uh, cut back that dividend is if they have a potential acquisition in the horizon that would check up uh, capital. I think KCB will continue to struggle this year in terms of dividends and uh, they might keep it where it was last year, but if they still remain under pressure and some of the other markets still demand a lot more capital, then it's even possible to cut it back. But I think they might still be able to keep it where it is because the Kenya unit is still quite, quite profitable, but they'll be operating on the edge probably into next year. Yeah, the, the multinationals, I think, would be good dividend payers. They don't have too much to grow internally unless we see something. Stanley had at some point mentioned some a local acquisition, but that seems to have fizzled out in some way. So I think they may well be still on the on track paying dividend. And that should support the share price to some extent. Copbank has also been quite okay. They've not had much expedition outside of Kenya, so... The, They've been reasonably insulated and also just because of their shareholding structure, again, they, there's a push for them to pay dividends. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Thanks. There's a question here. Kat, the analyst who's asking a uh, good suggestion uh, from Ronak, especially on the SPV issue, is curious how IFRS would dictate this approach in terms of reporting and in terms of the context of, of investors. Now, so that say, if you consider the report there, if you take that to an SPV, is that off balance sheet? Does that affect any ratios on the bank's statements, Ronak? That is a good question. Something I need to look into. But off the top of my mind, I can think about, I, I can refer to the restructuring that was done by EcoBank uh, a few years ago where they moved some of their NPLs to, to an SPV. And my recollection, obviously, first of all, EcoBank report numbers on an IFRS basis. And I don't recollect that being an issue or having any particular impact on any of the regulatory ratios, but that's something I need to take a deeper look into. And as I mentioned before, this is something that's been done in other markets as well, especially in the aftermath of the financial crisis. I, I'm not sure it, it would be a big issue with IFRS. Right. I don't see any other questions. So, uh, Eric, did you want to add any comment on that? That's an interesting question. Although I would imagine, because a lot of these names should have already been fully provided to a certain extent. And so I think it's more of an operational element to try and get that process done with and not disrupt management from the, from kind of the ongoing op operational work. I'm, I'm even imagining it's already happening for banks uh, because they, in banks, they typically have departments who just deal with distressed assets. Maybe those, they've not been hived off, but op operationally, it's something that's taking management uh, efforts uh, just to be able to resolve that. Uh, but uh, I, I, I can't say from my FRS9 perspective, uh, the, uh, I, I don't have any specific uh, response on that, uh, on that now, but I wouldn't imagine there, was, there would be an issue. 
And then in terms of macro affecting micro, how are things going in terms of there's a bullet payment that's supposed to be made for the euro bond next year. Do you see that impacting some of the banks that are holding some of the euro bond? And then of course, when you talk to clients and to business leaders, what are they telling you in terms of their outlook for the country generally as we head into the second half of the year and into next year? We'll just start with that, Eric, and then Ronald. On my part, I would say, I think the payment of the euro bond, depending on which I, I think that the holdings of euro bonds by commercial banks, I think they're different maturities. So there's expectation that the next year's euro bond is going to be paid by government, whether by refinancing or other mechanism. So I, I think uh, clearly the expectation that the payments are going to be done. So I, in my sense, that's not a major risk, uh, depending on how much of their euro bonds are held for that maturity, then those will be paid, but the, the other bonds will still, uh, euro bonds will still remain in their books. So yes, but overall the economy in my sense is that there's a lot of concerns, especially with regards to the way that there's a major change in the structure of the economy and the trend support, support the export or local manufacturing. And there's a lot more pressure on the on, on importers, you still have other risks, the high interest rates is still a concern, but I, I think one has to really read carefully uh, these changes and underline appropriately. The current administration is pushing hard to implement its promises under the manifesto and we are seeing it in action. They're also doing it in clearly challenging times. I don't know that there's ever been a good time, but. Clearly, this is one of the more difficult times to be doing some of the changes that are happening. But uh, I, I get the sense that they are they are really keen on supporting domestic business or domestic manufacturers, um, and 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 eventually, I think uh, they are also very pro pro trade, especially within Africa. I think long term that should be good for the banking sector. Yeah, thank you, Ronak. It's going to be an interesting flashpoint next year when the repayment comes. And obviously the impact will be binary depending on the outcome of the payment. If the government does indeed redeem that bond, then all is good. Obviously the, the, the banks that are holding those bonds get paid and also there may be another benefit because if the government repays that, then you might see a rally on the yields for the other bonds as well, which might lead to mark to market gains. So obviously that's the blue sky scenario that the banks are probably hoping for. And, but uh, obviously, given the debt sustainability challenges and given what we've seen in other countries, the the risk of a default is not zero. The government has done quite a lot of work to make sure that they, re, they, they are able to redeem that. But given all the challenges, there is a risk of default. And in that environment, then the, that could lead to a real reckoning for the banks because obviously, they make losses on the euro bond that they're holding, but it also leads to uh, yields on the other euro bonds increasing, which leads to mark-to-market losses. And we can, we've seen last year that could be quite significant. If the government defaults on the euro bonds, then the auditors will also start asking questions about whether the, the banks need to start taking haircuts on their local government portfolio as well, because ultimately it's the government on both sides. So if the auditors ask the banks to make haircuts on those, and that, as we were discussing earlier, are quite a significant part of banks' balance sheet, 
And that could lead, lead to a pretty substantial write-offs on their investments portfolio and could be a big impact on profits. Yeah, it's all to play for and it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. There are a couple of questions which have come in a bit more. Somebody's asking a few more thoughts, especially, I think Eric, you could be the one following up more on this. And then Bank and DTB, I think, no, are they something that the IM was seeking shareholder approval to execute acquisitions of up to 10 billion straight up? Any prospects of an acquisition? Recently for IM Bank and DTB. As a curious thought also in DTB, especially, they seem to be quite depressed in terms of valuation. They're around, I think, last I checked, 0 0.2 price to book. Any thoughts on that, Eric? So, IM and uh, DTBs, the, yeah, the, I think uh, DTB, and, and they, they really did try this time. I, th I think they did try and, and improve a little bit. They held, they, the MPLs uh, held, held mostly flat. Uh, but of course, the cost to income ratio wasn't, so they went to almost uh, 50, 50%. It's a pity they, they've been trying to grow and the story they give is that they, they want to grow and that's why they're holding this much capital. Of course, there are issues around whether well, that NPL ratio, the current run rate is going to be maintained uh, to the full year. Have they fully come? clean with the, the, the level of um, provisions uh, that, that they need to have. Uh, I, I, you know, they are they're opening more branches. And I think last year they slowed a little bit. And then this year we've seen them start opening branches again. And you know, they're trying to really manage their cost of funds because we put a, a, a larger branch network, then certainly that's something that could work for them. Yeah, but at the current pricing, I think they need to do something. I don't know that it's dividend. Yeah. I think they, they really need to think about the, their shareholders. So the current pricing, it is a case for some sort of, I would imagine, I don't know whether it would be a share buyback or something that would at least adjust the, pri the price upwards. Because investors seem to be pricing in some very material risk for DTB. And them, I think it's just a lower ROE is for them to just work out on it, just improve that. And I don't know whether that introduction of transactions of that nature, whether they'll be back on the acquisition phase, whether they want to consolidate other markets. If, if that's the case, then we might still see their ROE remaining low for some time. Maybe it might be a good acquisition, maybe cut costs, but either way, until such a transaction comes comes through, it it may well be a bit of time before you see that array going up. Okay. But they've got into new markets, so and they seem to be growing. Or I think they still need, they need to balance the dividend uh, and their growth prospects to really sustain the momentum. And maybe for Rona beyond Kenya as a as a country, maybe Africa as a whole. Globally, what's your outlook, especially for banks, uh, given interest rates and inflation rates uh, currently? We're very positive. As I mentioned before, within the frontier context, uh, Kenyan banks somehow stick out in terms of the low profit growth uh, that they're reporting. But outside of Kenya, even if you look at the wider East Africa in Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, we're seeing very banks report very strong earnings growth, ROEs expanding. Likewise, we've seen a similar pattern in Nigeria, but that's being driven by some special events in the wider frontier con context as well. Georgia, Kazakhstan, very strong earnings growth. And valuations have re-rated somewhat over the last 12, 15 months, but by and large, banks still remain quite uh, attractive, trading below book value. So therein lies the big 
issue with the investment thesis for Kenyan banks. Yes, the valuations have come off, but their valuations are still not that significantly lower than what most of their frontier peers are trading at. At the same time, the frontier peers are reporting much stronger earnings momentum. And from a macro perspective, many of those economies are in a much stronger position than Kenya. So if you're a global frontier manager sitting outside of Kenya, you have very little incentive to allocate money into Kenya and Kenyan banks right now compared to the frontier peers. Is that one of the reasons why maybe people are pulling out, especially the foreign investors are pulling out of some of these markets uh, to maybe go global in terms of lower risk, yet decent returns? Yeah, I'll, I'd say, yeah, the numbers have been disappointing and not exciting enough to really attract strong inflows. But over and above that, I think the key issue for Kenyan equities right now is the macro risk. We've spoken a bit about it, but key within that is the FX issues. Again, not so much in terms of what the, the, the level of the FX, we've seen that come under a lot of pressure. And obviously, foreigners would prefer the exchange rate to, to stabilize because of weakening shilling eats into their returns. But that's something they can price into their models and their estimates. What they can't really cater for or work around is the FX liquidity itself. As we saw earlier in the year, the interbank market completely shut down. There are widespread reports of investors having to queue up for a few days when they want to repatriate amounts even as small as a million dollars. And that is a big red flag because many of these investors got their hands burnt in Nigeria where, you know, for more than three years, the FX market has been dysfunctional and they've been stuck. They got stuck in Sri Lanka. They got stuck in Pakistan. So the minute they saw some red flags appearing in Kenya, you know, they, they decided to just take the extreme position, sell down and and wait and watch to see what happens before they, they make a move again. So I think it's the FX market that still remains front and center of investors' concerns. And if the government can provide some confidence around that, if you can get the FX market to get become more fully functional, then we will start to attract inflows despite you know, some of the relatively challenging numbers that uh, the banks are reporting. Time to maybe do a bit of closing thoughts. I'll start with you, Eric, because we've now analyzed the bank's results for the first half of the year. What's your outlook for some of these banks in the second half of the year? Any areas of concern, any areas of positive positivity? And then as we head also into next year. I think look at the positive drivers, especially if global interest rates start to ease off or at least stabilize. I think that should be, should at least start stave off the increase in uh, cost of credit for any cost of funds for them. Uh, ESG is also going to be a major area that they could focus to try and uh, manage their cost of funds. And so we will probably see the banks uh, greening a lot of their lending as we go forward as Tina hosted the Africa Climate Summit. And I think there's a lot of push on that end. And with fuel prices edging higher, I think that's an area which is going to be a major focus. And we've seen this administration also being very keen on that end. So the banks will certainly uh, try and ride uh, that wave and uh, adjust appropriately. I think, uh, save for the one-offs, and hopefully we get banks clearing their positions uh, this year, 
I, I think we should see a better uh, 2020, 2024. And at current valuations, I, I think I, I still feel it's a case for the Kenyan investor to still look at the sector carefully, but I think still seeing, I still think there's potential. Once things stabilize in this economy and you start having flaws by foreign investors coming back, and we've been seeing the out for a considerable period, if it starts coming back, it's very easy for the market to rally considerably. We've seen a lot of buckets of savings. So you are MSSF, different buckets of savings are, are going to government securities, but I think also over time, we'll probably see that going back into the equities market. And banks are always kind of winners. Out of a crisis, banks tend to be key winners. And, and so I think that's something one has to be aware of. I, I think that's something that I'm still positive, given just evaluations where they are. Rona, as I come to you, Kevin, I think you've worked with him before. And a very specific question for you. What's your take on the Eurobond buyback and recent sentiments by credit rating agency, especially Moody's? And how do these sentiments advise international investors decision-making? What's your feel, especially around investors' appetite for a buyback happening? And then you can also give us your closing thoughts in that regard. I think broadly, the buyback would be positive. It would send a signal to the market that Kenya has sufficient reserves to redeem the Euro 2024 uh, bond and obviously not default. So I think that would be a very strong positive signal from the government. And obviously it would also save some the government some money given where the current yields are the savings is, is likely to be that significant. They're definitely not going to push the needle uh, that much. Yeah, from that perspective, I was, I, I think it would be positive. With regards to Moody's decision to, to classify that as a potential default event, that slightly puzzled me. I think they, that was driven by some technical factors, which I need to look into. But yeah, it's something that definitely surprised me because Kenya wouldn't be the first issuer, whether that's from a sovereign side or from a private sector perspective, that would be doing a buyback of its Eurobond. Most or many issuers typically follow the same uh, route, especially when there's a bit of volatility. So overall, it wouldn't surprise me if the Kenyan government is currently engaging with Moody's to see, you know, how they can work around that, because clearly this is something that's not a default event if, if the country is actually redeeming, uh, redeeming uh, early. In terms of the outlook for the second half, I think we're going to see more of the same, not a meaningful improvement in profitability in the second half. What I'm hoping to see from a positive perspective is uh, some margin expansion coming through. I referenced earlier that during previous cycles, like in 2011, 2015, we saw meaningful expansion in margins. And given the recent uptick in bond yields, and given that most of these banks have started to implement their risk pricing models, I'm hoping asset yields start to catch up and we start to see slightly higher margins. Uh, at the same time, given some of the digitization init initiatives that these banks have continued to implement, I'm hoping to see continued strong growth on the fee income. Uh, but my concern is those two positive factors will be firstly offset by um, a potential slowdown in loan growth. We have seen, when you look at the Stanbeck PMI index, 
that has consistently been below 50, which seems to suggest that there's a lot of concern in the economies and that will lead to some conservatism in terms of uh, borrowing and obviously banks even making lending decisions. The other area I think we'll see a bit of a negative surprise, and obviously banks have already started guiding on this, is NPLs. I think we'll continue to see NPLs higher and cost of risk relatively elevated. So I think these factors will largely balance each other off and we're not going to see a material improvement in performance compared to what we've seen in the first half. And that leads to the share, in terms of share price performance, if you don't see a material improvement, that's not going to get investors excited from a fundamental perspective. And also the other factor there is if you look at the local investors, we're seeing now the one-year T-bill almost touching 15%. So local retail and institutional investors not really in, interested in the equity market until yields start to turn. So there's no support from them. And likewise, from foreign investors until and unless we see a meaningful imp improvement in the FX market, which again might be difficult given what the oil price has recently been doing, foreign investors are, are likely to engage. So again, there's, there's no real support or catalyst for a, a better second half. Sorry, I'm being a bit pessimistic here, but yeah, that's how I see it. It's all right. I think it's good for investors to have a good lay of the land, a proper one, I think, as they prepare the second half of the year. We are still not yet out of the hood, in my estimation. I think that's all we have for today's uh, spaces, uh, unless you have uh, any closing thoughts from either of you. Oh, by the way, it would be good to tell people where they can find you, Eric, and also Ronak. Maybe we can start with you, Eric, where can people find you and where you work at? What can they find on the services? Take the chance to advertise where you work. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think I work at Standard Investment Bank. We have a couple of products or services that we offer. So we have corporate finance, research and advisory. I think those are areas one is looking to raise capital, structure their business, or, or just do a merger. Those are the kind of things that we do. We also have an asset management which trades global markets instruments, and that's also done quite the flagship product there is Mansa X. And then we have securities trading, that's equities and fixed income. So we equities is probably what we are discussing today with the banking sector. And then we have the fixed income instruments, which again has been mentioned here. That's with, with higher and higher interest rate, I think fixed income has become a darling for investors. So again, secondary trading, we, we manage that. We are in Nairobi. We are based out of Nairobi and yeah, Jekwat Towers, 16th floor. Thank you very well, much. Thank you, Nick. Ronak, where do you work at? I know you're not based around, but it would be good for people to know where they can find you around. No, I'm not around. I'm based in London, but nowadays with technology, that's no longer a, a, an issue. The easiest way to catch me is my Twitter. You can see my handle is at Gadia, but beyond that, as I mentioned earlier, I work for EFG Hermes. We are an Egypt-based investment bank, but we've got a fully-fledged stockbroking license and office in Nairobi, based out of Orbit Place on Jeromo Road. You can engage with EFG Hermes on our official capacity at our physical address. But also recently, we have introduced the EFG Hermes One app, which enables you to trade stocks on, on listed on the NFC. And it is fully digitalized, saves you the hassle of having to visit our offices and going through the traditional uh, account opening and all those analog uh, procedures. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us on Spaces today.